Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode four, where we'll be revisiting the film Thunderball. Now, this is like a really interesting one, I feel like. Not that the other ones haven't been interesting, but the other ones are like classic Bond films, regardless what you think of Dr. No and we'll say Goldfinger in your case, Joe. They're considered... Mm -hmm classics but this one is really interesting because it's both like the peak sean connery hype i guess you could say in the 60s but it's also the one that like no one ever talks about that much it's just that big film that did well that came under over goldfinger and i feel like the general consensus of this film is that this was kind of not maybe not the beginning of the end but where things kind of took a turn it's interesting because something I, I read uh, preparing for this podcast that I must have read before but forgot is that this film, Thunderball, uh, earned more money than what the next five Bond films following it did. Yeah. And so you're right. Like it was, this is in terms of popularity in the 60s, peak Bond, peak Sean Connery in in his sort of Hollywood stardom as Bond. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah, after after Goldfinger, it's sort of like people often just skip straight to You Only Live Twice because that's obviously the one with Blofeld and the big sets and then you move on and, and you get George Lazenby. And Thunderball is sort of in that weird spot in the middle where it made a ton of money. It's got all the elements of Bond films in it. Like By this point, they had got the template down. And yet it just sort of seems a little bit wish-washy in the middle. I, like, I see what you did there with Wishwashy. I appreciate that. Did I? Water puns. I am funny without even realizing. <laughs> it's just so talented, this guy. I'm I can't so talented, it. honestly. <laughs> Wishwashy, yes, lots of water, as we will discuss. My goodness, so much water. But again, it's one that can be easy to forget. Uh, but if you look at the list of every Bond film and their grows, if you then sort them by inflation, so they're all on level playing field, Thunderball is the second best performing James Bond film of all time. Mad. Uh, number one is Skyfall and number three is Goldfinger. But I believe even so, like in terms of tickets sold, I think I read that in the US, in America, this is still number one. This was still the biggest Bond film. But we've got to the point where in the 60s it was the biggest film, you know, of that decade, arguably, and the biggest Bond film to just being like, yeah, the one with the water, I think, maybe Tom Jones. And then you nope. just move on. Like it, It's just been forgotten despite being so big at the time. It's the one that a lot of people, when they discuss it, is always to do with the legal issues with it and how it eventually spawned off uh, Never Say Never Again. Yes. I always talk about Kevin McClory and the rights and this and that. And actually you talk or you hear very little compared to other Bond films about the actual plot and what was in the film itself, which is kind of strange. So what did you remember about this film before you saw it? Well, good question, Tom. As you may remember, I actually put this as my second worst Bond film. You hated it. <laughs> Couldn't stand it. I remember really disliking this film, uh, mainly because of... Well, I, I'm looking back at what I wrote for our, our intro episode, and I said that I disliked the villain. I said it had long, drawn-out underwater scenes, which weren't particularly good. 
or impressive and generally unmemorable. And uh, I think now with having seen it again, I think some of that is a bit unfair. I definitely don't think it is the second worst Bond film. I'm, I'm becoming <laughs> a whole new Bond fan with this podcast, honestly. Yeah. But uh, I, I think, yeah, generally I had a negative, a negative opinion of this film going for like before this going into the podcast which i think a lot of people would probably agree with you on not so much the goldfinger stuff but you might have brought some people back with the thunderball uh hating you know you're a very Possibly. complex man uh but for me i just don't i just didn't remember it like this is one i watched uh, i've said multiple times at this point i re-watched all the sean connery ones uh back in 2015 and this is one i actually don't remember <laughs> like mm. i didn't see it that long ago but i remembered the other three roughly but this one i had just no memory of at all i think the only thing i remembered was the thing that i liked about it is that you get to see other double o agents and the scene where they're all sitting around the table yeah. i was like i remember that scene and i remember liking that scene and i remember there was water and i and i think that's about it so it's not like negative it's not that i was thinking oh this film was bad i don't remember it but i know it was bad it was more just like nothing like i just remember nothing about it i couldn't say good or bad no, you did remember something else as well. Maybe okay. not intentionally, but you remembered the sharks. Because you ah, did say yes. about sharks. Yes, I said sharks were in Octopussy, which they still might be. They still might be. We haven't got there yet. They still might be in that film. There's sharks everywhere, but a, there is a fair amount of sharkage in this film. Hmm. This is the origin of the shark. I think that's the subtitle of, uh, of this film. <laughs> yeah, that's just lesser known subtitle. They, they dropped it for uh, like home releases and things. Yes. So let's get into it. We've got a lot of film to cover. So this is the longest Bond film, not across the board, but at the time they intentionally made this and they even marketed this one as the biggest Bond ever. Like they made a point. So this film is two hours and 10 minutes long, which is about 20 minutes or so longer than the other ones. Uh, so, it's, so it's a long one. We've got a lot to cover here. Uh, hopefully still won't be as long as Goldfinger, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see. Them. We'll see. I also will say this is the first Bond film watching that I have since read the book of. Ooh. So I think that helped a lot with some of the things we're going to discuss. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to actually see sort of direct comparisons now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I haven't read any of the books. I'll, I'll admit that. So I don't know. Even if you make it all up, I'll be like, interesting. Wow, really? A giant squid, you say? He fights one of those. Interesting. He becomes best friends in the book with a guy called Joe oh yeah and actually he he's better than bond yeah you're the original jb <laughs> yeah, that's joe right. bond <laughs> that's right okay so the film starts we've got the other class you know we've got the classic james Bond walking across the screen the circles are the same size can confirm that's all good <laughs> phew <laughs> i know right i was i was worried there uh but he still has the hat i think he we does. predicted he would be hatless by this point but he still very much has the hat. But the story does... There is some hat story going on this time, which I'm excited to get to. Hat story? We'll get there, Joe. We'll get there. Good, because I forgot, clearly. We'll, we'll get. Story. It's in my notes. It's highlighted. <laughs> it's bold. Yellow highlighter. Hat yeah, so... revelations. <laughs> it's actually Sean Connery now. Yes. Um, uh, and not Bob Simmons for the first three. And... Really not much to say. Like Sean Connery, I think it's very, very similar to, to the first three. Uh, it's got, got a little wobble, which I, th I thought was a bit strange. Like, Could they not have got a better shot? 
of him doing the, doing like the kneeling down and shooting without the little wobble he has. But I guess he was just like, you know, let's get this done. Let's move on. I'm a busy man. Sean only does one take. One take, Sean. Yeah, especially when it comes to sharks. Oh, yes. He hates those. Hates them. So we go from that straight into another opening sequence, which this film immediately started on a bad uh, a bad note with me because you open up on a church, you have a coffin which says JB written on it, which I think is supposed to be, oh, is that James Bond? Does that sound, is he dead? But they very quickly zoom out and show him, James Bond, up above looking down talking to uh, a French woman. Now, the reason why this started on a bad note is because I have a pet peeve with films where the talking is way too quiet and the action is way too loud. So I was sitting there trying to watch this film. I I live on a, a decently busy road, so I had cars coming by and things like that. And because it's a funeral... Those two were whispering to each other, but I could not, for the life of me, make out what they were saying. And I had to turn it up, and I re-rounded about three times, and I eventually just said, you know what, forget it. I don't care. This isn't going to tie into the plot. I'm sick of Sean whispering, and then she's got a French accent, so it makes it harder to understand. I don't know. I roughly know what they said, but I was a bit annoyed. I was a little bit worried. Like, is the sound mixing just bad in this film? But then, of oh. course, I realised, no, they're whispering, which is why it's so quiet. No, I think the sound mixing is bad as well, oh, though. Because okay. you, you could be describing the exact... This is so weird. The exact same thing with me. The exact <laughs> same thing. So for the first time, this was me watching them on the Blu-rays. Nice. I previously watched them on Amazon, but they got rid of them. So I was back onto the Blu-ray box set. And I was watching it through the PS4 and I I spent about the first 20 minutes trying to watch this film, troubleshooting, working out why my Blu-ray or why the PS4 was so much quieter. It was mad. And then I was like, this can't be right. Why are their voices so quiet? What? And then it would get onto the Bond song, the Thunderball song, and it would be blasting. I think this is insane. Something must be wrong. No. Okay, good. It was just the film because you're right. I had to put on subtitles and they stayed on for the whole film um, oh, because okay. of that first scene where I, was, I just couldn't understand what they were saying it was really annoying yeah because the problem with it as well so i did internal subtitles i just kind of avoided it and then once you get to them being outside outside of the funeral then it becomes a little bit better and then they start talking and i didn't have any other problems later on i was able to turn down the volume and it was okay because i've been watching the same blu-ray set so i know the other three were totally fine i had no problems with the sound mixing but this one straight away starts with the whispering Uh, but they explain a lot if it was just a case of like, oh, this is sad. It's like, oh, yeah, very sad. Do you want to go outside? Yeah, okay. If it was like very basic dialogue, you <laughs> would get... Don't write a Bond film, Tom. <laughs> it's it's in the works. I've... <laughs> People are interested. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, so if it was very basic dialogue, you wouldn't mind. But they explain a lot of plot here. And it's only yeah. plot that's relevant to this opening sequence. And I think roughly what they're saying is that, no, it's not me in the coffin. <laughs> James Bond has to be like, no, that's not me. Even though what? she's like, I know, I know, right? That's the next film. We'll get to it. But it says JB. It must that, be. It's, it's got to be. Who else would it be? <laughs> um, but yeah, so he just explains to her, like, she says, oh, it's the same initial as you. He says, no, it's my partner, Jeff, someone, Jeff Bruger, I wrote Bruger. I don't think that's the name, but it was interesting because 
ahead of this podcast, I was like, right, I should probably find out the details of this. Went to the Wikipedia page. It skips this section in part of the plot summary. Like, it Uh. does not explain this opening sequence at all. It just gets straight into the film itself. So that's how much people care about the storyline of this beginning bit. Um, But it's a man called Jeff whatever, and he killed two of Bond's... Uh, colleagues who they they don't really go into who they are i don't think and he's there to get revenge or or something like that i think it that's the gist of it well it, it is slightly related to the main story in in i thought it was a spectre agent the guy yeah probably i mean that that would make sense right yeah i wrote down so you got the first name which is jeff clearly yeah. <laughs> i got the last name which is bouvar bouvar right bouvar so there's your jv for you yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. So yeah, this guy, this guy killed two uh, two double O agents, I guess, and 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 now Bond wants revenge. So he's watching his funeral and and knowing that something is up. I'm guessing uh, with the French lady. It's very like you say. It's it's a lot of uh, explanation crammed into about three lines of very quiet dialogue, and then suddenly it's just moved on. And like, oh, okay, then I'll just I'll just uh, I'll just go with it. Yeah, like I don't think you're supposed to get what happens. Like if you were in a cinema and it was like bada like bam blah bam bang the shot and then it cut to this, you just probably wouldn't pick up on it at all. Um so yeah, so then they cut outside, they leave. And this was I, I didn't really understand what was happening here. I guess Bond went to the funeral to chase down another Spectre agent, and from the church they see a black car that drives away. Uh, it's a woman who was grieving at the funeral and it pulls up to a big mansion she gets into her mansion she sees a man in the red chair and it's bond i I don't i don't understand how that works but you know i think we were what were we saying before in the last film about the superhero stuff how guy Guy hamilton didn't want bond to seem like a superhero and then straight away with this film now that terence young is back i feel like we had a teleporting james bond in the first two (laughs) minutes of the film yes he teleported and knew exactly where to position the jetpack for later on in in the scene but yeah so he he saw the the widow this is the whole and this is the only thing i can go off is that he he saw that she opened the car door herself and that was enough to give it away or maybe he'd just seen through the veil as well i don't know it's um it is a very strange pre-title sequence. It happens very quick and there's a lot of details that you can just miss. But you're right, I don't know how Bond kind of knew. You're just supposed to I think turn off your brain and it's just a case of Bond's there at a funeral and he thinks there's a bad guy. He follows the bad guy into the house and then they have a a big fight, which is why I didn't know if it was Spectre or not. It would make sense that it was Spectre, especially with how this film goes, but it's like it really doesn't matter to anything that happens in the film unless oh actually maybe it does because in a later part of the film during the scene where it's the big specter meeting with blofeld Mm -hmm. at the the head he says specter number six has been killed yeah and i was like what when did that happen like is that something from the book? I was very confused what he was talking about. But maybe this is what he was talking about. Maybe yeah. Bond killed Spectre Agent Number Six in this scene. Yeah, I think that's it. Well, that's exciting. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter, but it I didn't put bit. that together until just now. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say so. 
yeah, Bond's in the chair waiting, teleporting Bond, somehow got there before the car. And then, oh no, it's not a, it's not the wife or the widow, it's a man <laughs> dressed up and it's, yeah. it's the guy that was supposed to be dead. Crazy. And then you get, I mean, that, to be fair, it's quite a good little thing. It's quite funny, you know, Bond's going up, punching her straight in the face. It's like a, whoa, what moment? And then it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's quite funny. Uh, not, I'm not saying punching women is funny, but, but you know, that setup was quite good. Um, but then... I would I would forgive this whole kind of general crappiness if it was a good fight scene and everything, but it really is not. I don't know what you felt, but I just thought this this fight scene was really janky, really weirdly edited and cut together and had no flow at all. There's very strange sort of like almost match cuts where it's it's meant to be like one full thing and you can tell there's a cut in there as they're just about to throw a punch or something like that in between all of the furniture throwing. And it really just looks kind of sloppy for being four films in and having, you know, big budget cinema blockbuster. It looks bad. I would, I did notice the exact same thing. So we haven't seen issues like this in any of the previous films, and Terence Young is back, so you think he'll be on top of it. But this film in general with its scenes, there's a lot more cuts and edits in general. Mm-hmm. But there's yeah. nothing like what we see in this scene where it doesn't feel like one cohesive fight where it's like Bond throws a chair, which he does, I think, and then he blocks it. And then the guy, as part of blocking it, then tackles Bond. It's like all this separated moves that happen. Like, here's a move of the guy tackling Bond. And then it just cuts to Bond, like, judo chopping in the back or something. Like, it's like none of it really makes sense. No. And yeah, I, I totally noticed it. Like it was not subtle. If anyone has ever edited anything ever, you could just see that there were so many continuity errors to the point where like you just can't count them all because none of the scenes or none of these cuts actually tied into each other. There was kind of no effort to make it flow as one cohesive fight. Yeah, it was a really, really clumsy start to the film for what's meant to be the big opening following Goldfinger. We had pretty much every... As we were saying, it was like a mini Bond film for that one. We had every single bit of a Bond thing, explosions, women, fight. This one, it just didn't have anywhere near the same quality. And I'm not even saying the Goldfinger one was very good, but this one's just just really quite bad. Um, It also just, what it leads on to, which I think is what a lot of people think of when they think of Thunderball, which is the jetpack. I don't know if it's just because jetpacks now are just you know, yeah that's a, you know we just know what jetpacks are maybe we jet all have are, one yeah we all got one in the garage you know you used it once and you got bored with it yeah. um but maybe jetpacks were a cool new thing in 1965 maybe but it it wasn't quite the uh show-stopping end to the pre-title sequence that i was hoping it would be and i think partly something something to do with that is just because you people look really silly with jetpacks no i don't know i just thought like the way that your legs dangle in a jetpack there's a shot of bond flying away and it just looks so to me just so silly with a little legs going in in the sky maybe i'm just maybe i'm being a bit harsh on jetpacks but i just thought it was a bit lame well i can see where you're coming from so basically what happens is uh bond beats the guy breaks his neck and then there's a load of people trying to break into the room at the same time bond leaves they're chasing him and then he goes to the roof of this mansion and then just finds a jetpack which i think is implied it's his like 
I think, yeah, it's implied that he's planted it there, gets on the jetpack, and then kind of flies off. And it made me laugh. And sometimes that's enough. Like, I was like, this is really silly, but does that make it good? I don't know, but I think I'm enjoying this. But it's so brief as well. It's not a big scene with the jetpack. He literally just, from the mansion roof, gets in it, and then just flies over to his car which is not that far away and i'm assuming the reason is because this is a real jetpack like this is a jetpack that did function and it wasn't any movie magic or anything like that during this time there was a functioning jetpack that you could get Uh, i was reading about this afterwards and it was using like the super bowl as well and things like that like there are other cases of people using this jetpack and i believe they just fall like ah jetpack okay we bond should use a jetpack so it's kind of a little bit forced in there, but you're right about the legs, but it, <laughs> it got to the point where it was so silly, I couldn't help but enjoy it. It was silly, and I was laughing at it too, if you couldn't tell, but I don't know, I think why I don't like that is because it clearly wasn't meant to be silly. Or maybe it was, but to me it was meant to look cool. And you're right, it it, it lasts five seconds as he, as he goes down to the ground and then to the Aston, and... Uh, yeah, it's just funny how that is such a. I think there's like, you know, toys and and everything was related to the jetpack for this film, and it's just it's just like that's it. Like, oh, I think you're right. I think it was a very forced thing in there. Just like oh, this is this cool piece of tech. Let's just get it in there uh, at the beginning and then and then get on with it. Yeah, like they haven't quite figured these out yet. The From Russia with Love is looking like a a great accident in terms of that title sequence or opening sequence being great these ones it's this template is very similar to what we saw in goldfinger but ultimately it's like yeah it's a short mini story with bond where he just does some cool bond things and then that's your lot and that's that's that wrapped up they haven't quite figured this one out and this one kind of has different problems from Goldfinger, but to me it felt very similar to Goldfinger, where it's like, okay, fine, if you're going to do a standalone Bond film, just make sure it's like really solid and memorable. And this one kind of is, I guess, a little bit more memorable than Goldfinger, but still nothing I really, like nothing you're thinking about after the film is done. Or yeah, I wasn't mem- anyway. Memorable for the wrong reasons, probably. Yes. So it ends with them getting the Aston Martin, he meets up with the French woman, he then... Well, it's the Aston Martin from Goldfinger, so a nice mm-hmm. little bit of, of continuity. He then activates the bullet shield, which blocks the bullets. Uh, it turns out he's got some foam installed. I don't think that's from Goldfinger. I think this is new for this film, the foam. The foam? Yeah. Oh, the, oh, the I thought that was water. What, coming out the back? Well, foamy water. It was quite thick for water, right? Yeah, well, whatever it was. Some liquid, yeah, being shot out the back. Um, yeah i think that is new you're right so q's sorted him out with some water foam which is very nice of him and then that transitions into the 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 credits sequence which i really appreciated the fact that there was such a strong tie i want to say it's that's the first time it's happened and it's become a bond staple ever since they usually do try and make a a smoother transition into the opening scene into the credits one but this is one where it's very direct where the water is spraying on the screen and then that kind of transform into this water background which forms the basis of this this credit sequence yeah i was actually quite uh quite impressed by that uh seeing it for the first time because it is you're right it's quite quite smoothly done for what is a film that has a lot of very uh 
unsmooth <laughs> uh, cuts and things like that. It's like, oh, okay, nice. And you know how it goes all blue and then you get onto the, as you say, the title sequence. Uh, yeah, good stuff. So speaking of the title sequence, we have Tom Jones, Thunderball. I'm very curious to hear your opinion on this Bond song. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just leave you to answer before I say anything. Oh, okay, fine. I don't really remember this song that well. It's not one I ever really kind of re-listened to, and it's not one that hears a lot. And I actually couldn't remember how it went at all before re-watching ah. this. And re-watching it, I was actually quite surprised. Like, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites. It's still kind of probably middle of the pack. But I was like, Tom Jones doesn't sound as stupid as I remember him sounding. Because <laughs> in my head, <laughs> when you say Tom Jones... I think like sex bomb and how silly that kind of stuff is and oh, I how love that song. Yeah. And then how like yeah. Mm. <laughs> Said no one. No. <laughs> uh, and just how exaggerated his voice is. He's a bit of a caricature, maybe that's the wrong word, but like he in my head I have a very exaggerated version of Tom Jones's voice in my head because of how kind of iconic his voice is. And this one wasn't that. And I really like the backing track as well. I think the actual music itself is really fantastic. Uh, so overall, I actually really enjoyed it. The lyrics are corny, like really corny, because they're just directly singing about how cool James Bond is, which is not stuff that I kind of get into. It's like at least try and mask it. But I was pleasantly surprised. I, I actually think it's a solid song. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's that's good because I get the impression this isn't necessarily related to Thunderball per se, but it's related to Tom Jones. Good. And I just get the idea that a lot of people do not like Tom Jones. I don't know what it is about him. I think a lot of people find him creepy. Um, hmm. Maybe because of the whole sex bomb stuff. And uh, But uh, I, I often find, yeah, that they, they might not even, they might not mind the song, but because they don't like Tom Jones so much, it's like, no, no, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm kind of, I think I agree with you in that I actually quite like it. I don't think it's, uh, compared to Goldfinger, this one I think I probably would listen to more, but mainly because, as you say, I actually like the sort of melody of it more, the, you know, the, the, the trumpets or whatever they are, some sort of brass or, yeah. I think uh, that sounds really good to me. It is a little bit repetitive, but then I guess that is just the nature of some Bond songs. Um, and... Yeah, I would say it's actually quite good. I know a lot of people talk about Tom Jones and they say about, oh, did you know he passed out when he did the final notes? I don't really care. <laughs> like, Great, good for him. Good for him. Like, the final note, it doesn't go on for a very long time, whatever. But uh, song-wise, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's quite good. It is very similar to Goldfinger, I think. Yeah, they were very intentionally trying to build off that success, you can tell. But it's one of those where I can disconnect it in my mind, you know? Like, when you compare it to Goldfinger, it, it doesn't kind of compare in terms of being a, a classic Bond theme. But I think when you kind of take it at its own merits, it's it's still pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, and I might say this song reflects how I feel about the film in general, where it's, oh. like, kind of unmemorable, and it doesn't have a big hook, this song, but still actually surprisingly solid. But maybe I'm giving too much away. Um, oh ho ho well another thing related to the music just before we get into the actual film because you do hear it throughout the film as well just to yeah. comment on is about the whole uh unused theme song i think there's a couple actually i think johnny cash even tried to do one for this for this film but uh the one that you hear instrumentally quite a lot is 
Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which uh, <laughs> I really like. I actually really like this as a as a song, as a Bond song, unused as it may be. Uh, I think it was originally meant to be sung by Shirley Bassey, kind of yeah. goes to show about the Goldfinger uh, connection, but they couldn't get her, so it was then sung by Dion Warwick. Um, and, yeah, it's it's kind of similar to later on with Tomorrow Never Dies, where the Surrender song by Katie Lang was never actually used as the main one, but you can still hear it throughout the score. And so, um, yeah, I, I just kind of like kind of like what we said uh, with Goldfinger, the music is really good for this film. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and I think even, yeah, for, for this one, both both songs, the one that they actually went with and the one that's just heard instrumentally, both really work well. Um, but anyway, the, the actual title sequence, I put down that this is sort of the first instance of, of the proper Bond women silhouette that has become such a, a, a cliche now for this. Um, we, we see lots of, yeah, silhouetted women swimming against blue and, and water backgrounds and then red every now and then. And I actually thought it was probably one of the worst so far, sadly. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, as I say, it has that iconic silhouette thing, which we then see so many times later on, but I don't know. It just didn't really do much of that, that premise of, of the silhouettes. And I think, uh, it just got a little bit repetitive by the end yeah i enjoyed it and it's because i somewhat retroactively really enjoyed it because this theme this film is all about water as we've already kind of said it's what you remember about it so Mm -hmm. i actually really appreciate how heavy they go on with the water theme for this this uh, opening sequence and to be honest i've enjoyed every single one so far the doctor no one's weird but I like how From Russia With Love heavily ties to the film. I like how Goldfinger had the golden statue women that heavily ties into the film. So I like that they went with the water theme, even if it's, like you say, a bit repetitive. And that is one thing I would kind of say against it. There's no progression there, where, yeah. say, in Goldfinger, with the gold statues, it's a lot of footage from the film and from russia with love and things like that and the ending of it is just a lot of fire so there's like a clear progression there this one doesn't go beyond here's women singing or swimming and here's a diver with a harpoon gun going across the color changes which i like and i think going from blue to red is is a really good choice especially for what happens in the film but yeah it you know, the last 30 seconds is pretty much the same as the first 30 seconds. And they kind of needed to add a little bit something to tie it all together. But I still really enjoyed the visuals and was actually quite impressed that they were doing this type of theme so early on. Because each of these films, Thunderball was released a year after Goldfinger. You know, like this is still a yearly franchise. I think it's You Only Live Twice where we have the two year gap. So yeah. I was just kind of impressed by the progression of these. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I think... Uh... I think they're all very, very similar. They're all very, very similar. It's not until I think technology kind of advances where they could start doing slightly different things, maybe. Because I think it's the same guy that that did them all, or maybe not. Actually, I might be getting that wrong. But uh, for now, it's, it's it is quite quite simple. But hey, that might be your cup of tea. It is. It is my cup of tea. Lovely. Like it. Uh, so at the very end, it also comes up because it's the credits that Terence Young is back for this film. So we kind of questioned about Guy Hamilton and the Terence Young stuff. So I looked it up in between and Terence Young did three Bond films, Dr. No from Russia with Love and this one, but this was his final film and Guy Hamilton did actually do more overall. So he is going to come back 
Uh, oh, but okay. he did four in total, where Terence Young only did the three. Oh, right. Oh, I didn't know that was his last one, this one. Hmm. Yeah. So it gives it a little bit of a different feel, and, and we'll get into it, I guess, as we go. But this didn't feel the same as the first two. So it's actually, if you told me this was not Terence Young, it was a new director, I actually might have believed you. Because it doesn't feel like the other two, but that might be for reasons that aren't related to him and the director. But it, this does feel like a different film from from those first two. I think you're probably you're right, and I think that's probably related to again, it's coming up because it always does about Thunderball, the whole Kevin McClory thing. I think he had a lot of sway with this. That was kind of one of the the um, the the things they they gave him to sort of settle this suit. Is okay, you become the the sole producer. And obviously have a lot of input on this film, so maybe it was a bit of just too many cooks with this, and, and not having one unified um, theme from one director. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely feels like that because the budget, I think, doubled again. Right? It's it's even higher than what it was for Goldfinger. Yeah. Yeah. So after the title sequence, we then go to Paris, and we see a man parking up with a eye patch. And my first thought was. Whoa, Blofeld, they just, they're just going to show him like that? <laughs> uh, which I was very quickly corrected on with, by the film. But I genuinely thought that was Blofeld to, to oh. begin with. <laughs> I will say, on that, that shot that you're talking about, the guy parking his car and coming out, did that really remind you of the shot from No Time to Die? Or am I just seeing things? I haven't seen No Time to Die since it came out in the cinema. So, oh, okay. And so that was a very long film. Or just the poster that they were sh- that they showed of No Time to Die quite a lot of the Aston Martin V8, I think it is. I don't know. It was something about the angle of that that camera. I just thought, oh, is this what they were referencing in No Time to Die? Probably not. But I, I think know. not because they wouldn't uh, reference. I think Largo parking up to Bond. <laughs> that seems like no. an odd choice, a bold choice, even. Uh, but then also, kind of going back to the whole general sloppiness of some of the editing. Did you notice that the aspect ratio just completely changed? It was it was just way off this first no, shot. No, I didn't. I don't think it happened again, but it's just kind of weird that it would it would even have this problem where yeah it it was in a slightly um can't think of the term for it now but with the black bars on the side as well. Letterbox is that? Or it was, is that the, let, that's the other way round. Yeah, so it was, it was letterboxed on the sides. Oh, uh, and then he goes through into the, the building and it goes back to normal. I just don't know what was going on. Just used the wrong cameras that day, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Whoops. I would, maybe it's just stock footage or something. I don't know. Maybe it's all <laughs> oh, reprojection. You see that guy in so many films. It's like the Wilhelm scream. Yeah, exactly. You see the eye patch, you're like, oh yeah, it's him. Oh yeah. So this guy goes into, I actually don't remember where he goes into, but he goes into a normal business, goes into the back, goes to... I can't remember, like a bookcase or something like that. I I don't think it is a bookcase. I, I don't quite remember. But basically he goes and finds a secret door and behind this door is a large silver room with a lot of very important looking people sitting around. Mm-hmm. And here we have... I I When it comes to Thunderball, there's a lot of things you can say about it, but Iconic is not one of them. So I found it was quite interesting that this had such an iconic Bond scene. And I would only assume that this type of scene happens in the later films as well, because this is one to one, you know, what people parody, all the businessmen around the table. You've got Blofeld at the top being hidden, stroking the cat, saying, how's our evil schemes going? And then all of them saying, we've made all this money, Blo- uh, number one. He's like, good, number two, good. 
um, and it's it's straight up that scene, uh, and the first time we see it as well. That is a great Blofeld impression. Oh, thank you. You nailed that. I yeah. will say on Blofeld's voice, this is just a small thing. I was convinced. I was like, oh, this is a much better Blofeld voice now. It's much creepier and a bit bit lighter and wispier. I said it sounded like Santa Claus last time in uh, From Washer of Love. <laughs> it's the same guy. It's the same guy doing the voice. I don't know what happened, but to me, they sound completely different. And I like this one a lot more. Uh, I don't know. But- I thought it sounded the same. I didn't look. I didn't think about it too much, but I did assume it was the same guy. Huh. I think I might just be going a little bit crazy then, but I, to me, it just sounded really, really different. Uh, but it was, yeah, still the same guy dubbing it. But you're right, though. Yeah, I, I actually can't. I can't think of if this. I mean, you're probably right in that very similar scenes come up, but I can't think of another film where it has such an such a big, as you say, the the cliche guy at the head of the table, and then someone says something, and then oh right, he's getting he's getting fried or dropped into a pit or something. So it is funny that this is one of the one. This is one of the things that really just stuck in people's minds. But I think that is something to be said about the quality of the. Like, I think altogether this seems really good. Mainly, I really like the set. Like we said before, sets are getting better and better. More and more money. Definitely true of this one straight away. I really love the design of the Spectre headquarters, the table, and it's very kind of angular and very modern looking just like coming in from from paris where it's all you know old buildings everything i loved it i really really liked the start of this with uh specter's specter's boardroom yeah what was the silver white and black i guess was everything wasn't it like even when they bring the world map it was just like a black and white kind of map or maybe like a silver and and black so yeah everything has that almost clean look which i feel like i don't know if this started it but having something be super clean almost feels evil (laughs) yeah i can't explain that yeah Yeah, sterile yeah like clean to a fault like they're not i guess it's because they're not human is the implication right where humans make a bit of mess and are a little bit more messy but with this being so precise it feels very robotic in a way that hammers in the the themes of them being evil um, and the yeah. fact that they're all in suits as well, like these are people of all nationality in tuxes, basically, kind of really hammers that home of everyone being very clean and proper and rich and, well, evil. Yeah, all very ordered, structured. This person talks and this person talks and this, but yeah, it's it's a great scene. Don't try and tell me what's actually discussed in the scene, though, because that's where I sort of, <laughs> that's where I struggle with actually listening to what's being said and trying to keep up with plot. So so roughly, I think he says, it's a shame that number six has been killed, which I now believe was the, was the man in the dress, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, and then he says, let's have a little finance update, everybody. Let's go around the table. It's like a Zoom call, I guess. You know, everyone everyone gets a turn. And then someone's like, we made all this money. We made all this money. And someone else, I think it's an Englishman, I want to say, is like, we made this money. And he's like, it's a little bit low. You're not. <laughs> not skimming off the top there are you and he's like no not me governor like i wouldn't do that and then he's like well somebody has and i'm gonna kill him and then i think he presses the button i want to say yeah i don't think the cat does it uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, i would love that i would love to see that yeah or he just like put yeah puts the cat on it and there we go it dangles a little toy above yeah. the button so the cat like little treat on the button <laughs> So then oh, he man. hits a button and a random person dies. You don't know why. He gets electrocuted 
and and is killed they don't really explain why i think i guess he's the one stealing money but they don't really explain how that works you're not meant to think about it too much i don't think yeah i think he was he was meant to be working with the guy that you think oh he's he's in for it now he's the one sweating and the guy next to him who's just like you know not reacting at all oh it was actually him all along crazy but it does make me kind of think that maybe it was random because we had this book from Russia with Love, which I tried to explain away when they give number five the old poison knife shoe instead yep. of number three. So I guess it's kind of referencing that and more of that, like he just will kill a random person <laughs> just to do it. But I thought I had an explanation for that one. But this one, I guess not so much, apart from the fact that oh, I guess he was crooked. You just don't even know who that guy is. Yeah, I guess so. I, what I did like with that little bit is for the pirate character, who <laughs> we don't really know yet, the, the nope. uh, eye patch one, um, you, it cuts to him and there's just, you know, no reaction from him. He's just there with his with his bit of paper, you know, looking through his notes. And it, it's a very, very simple little scene to do where it just kind of shows, as you say, they're not meant to be so inhuman they just don't care that this guy's getting electrocuted right in front of them and drop down a, a pit it's just nothing to him very cold but really really good i like that yeah and they have said his name they i think they did say they say straight away mr largo i think because when he oh, parks yeah. up the car he's like ah oh, mr largo's here excellent um so they do give you his name but also blofeld says this is number two so from anyone who's watched from russia with love recently which happens to be us you can straight away say well we know number one and we know number three and who number three was and who number five was but this guy's number two uh this guy's like second in the organization so it gives him a, a little bit more weight straight away which i thought was nice and i just appreciate these scenes and i don't know if it's because i enjoyed from russia with love so much that now i just like these scenes but i just really like the specter scenes where you see a little bit more into their organization you see into their structure how they work i just think that's cool and i just think it's a really neat way to start the film that you are straight away seeing who will end up being the villain and you see a little bit more about blofeld and, and how specter works as a organization yeah yeah, the sort of the 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 inner workings of an evil organization. What do they actually do? How do they run their business meetings? One thing that I caught that I haven't actually looked up, so I could be completely wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure I heard it was when they're giving all their um, announcements of how you know, income-wise, how they've generated money. The, the British guy says about a train robbery and how they they're getting money from that, and. I'm pretty sure that there actually was... Isn't that the Great Train Robbery happened in the 60s? Wasn't that a real thing that happened? Um, as I say, I might, need to, I might need to Google this, but I'm pretty sure that was an actual robbery that happened. And so it's kind of similar to in Doctor No when there was the painting that was actually stolen at the time. I like how they have these little things that kind of cement Spectre into the real world and kind of give them uh, as the as the origin of all of these crimes i just think it's um as you say kind of a neat little insight into the evil organization yeah it's cool you couldn't do it nowadays like if daniel craig's bond uh that era did that i'm not even going to name any examples i'm <laughs> I, I think that's like i just don't think you could do it nowadays i guess like stealing a painting from dr no fair enough and a train robbery back in the day but yeah i think with how things have gone in the world the last 10 years it's probably smart they didn't do that but you're right in terms of this film in the 60s it's neat to to ground it in that time and, and these crimes that have happened yeah yeah i think uh, you're right doing it now i think would just be a bit too bleak 
I think we're all depressed enough. We don't need to see more uh, reasons for why everything's going wrong in the world. No. So at the end of the scene, uh, Blofeld then says, number two, give us give us your plan. You've got a plan, right? And he says, we are going to demand a ransom of $280 million and we have sent an agent to a health clinic. Now, that's all you get. Like I was so ready there with my notes to be like, right, let's write this down. We're going to get the plan. But no, you get a very brief start of this plan that you know they're going to demand some sort of ransom so they're up to something and then it goes on to the next scene which is very noteworthy because it wasn't a fade it was a swipe they're swiping there is a lot of swipes in this film yeah like dr no was all fades and this one is all swipes and i don't i don't know why i don't know why change it i didn't mind the fade i don't know why they couldn't do both but this is the first time we see the swipe and like you say there's a lot of swipes as transitions in this film terence young is a very direct man he's gonna have one thing and he's gonna stick to it first it was fades now it's the swipes it's like one of those where, like, what wallpaper do you want? Or, or planning a wedding or something. Like, what appetizer do you want? And Terrence Young will be like, that one. Everyone will be eating the same. There'll be no <laughs> options. I have picked it and it shall be so. And you will like it. Yes. <laughs> or not. I don't care. This is my last one. I don't care anymore. Yeah, I'm retiring. <laughs> this is going to make me a lot of money. <laughs> so, yes, we swipe to the next scene where we see Bond. Uh, we we get Bond kind of straight away. He's getting a, a massage and a man approaches him who looks... He, he seems like he's kind of like a, a a British agent. Like, they don't say he's an agent. But the fact that uh, Doctor... Not Doctor. Mr. Largo is like, we've sent an agent there. And then there's like this British man and Bond sees a very weird red mark on him. I got a little bit confused by this whole sequence in the health clinic but mm. it's I did kind of notice that I feel like they intentionally made this guy seem like a altern like a alternate universe version of Bond. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a yeah. That's a, that's a good point. I didn't I didn't really pick up on that, but I think that's because as you say this this whole health clinic scene moves at a mile a minute in terms of plot. So I think it, I was just <laughs> I was just too too busy trying to keep up with it. Even though I'd read the book and I knew what the plot was. I I seeing it in film form is a whole different ballpark. Yeah, like there's a lot of details here. And to be fair, you don't actually need to know a lot of them because after a, like a third of the way into the film, everything that happens here is not very relevant. Like it kind of gets pushed to the side once the proper plot kicks in, but you get a lot of stuff that happens here. So I guess I'll try and get through it quite quick because it's not that important. Good um, luck. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. So Bond is, I think, coincidentally at the same health clinic as this Spectre agent. I think yes. it's a coincidence. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, so why... I don't know. It's so weird that that's the case. So weird. Um, so he's getting massage. He sees a symbol on the arm, thinking that's not right. Calls Money Penny, so she now knows about the symbol. And I think she said something about the symbol. But again, we know he's a bad guy. It doesn't matter where the symbol's from. That's a bad guy. And then... There's a little bit of flirting on the phone. Classic. We can all enjoy that. And then there's a man called Count Lippe. Mm-hmm. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah. And Bond searches his room. And I don't know why. <laughs> I'm struggling. Wait, wait, now, now I'm lost again. When he goes in the room. Right. So he must search the room because of something Money Penny said about the symbol. 
Yes. But I don't know why. Because <laughs> he's a, a tong. I, I remember the word tong or something yeah. like that. So some sort of related to that. I guess Bond knows something is up, so searches the room. As he's searching the room, which, by the way, I put great music so far. You've already said it's great music, but I think it's worth repeating. This film has fantastic music. It's a fantastic soundtrack. And just in these scenes, these quieter scenes, like they both do the action scenes well, but it's, I think it's the quieter scenes where you really feel it. And we have the scene of Bond searching a room, but the music's just great. Like, it's just really, really on point. This is the same music that's used later on when he's kind of searching around the clinic at night, right? Is that... Because I put that for that scene, and it's a similar scene where it is, yeah, it's it's quiet, sneaking around music, and it has that sort of very like plodding but but sneaky, yeah, it's great. I love the music. Yeah, for sure. So as he's looking around, we get a bit of a, a spy scene where he's just kind of looking for something. We see a man in bandages. Oh, so Bond oh, hides yeah. <laughs> because the man in bandages then comes in and takes a look in. He doesn't see Bond. He then leaves the room, the man in the bandages, and then Bond leaves the room, and then the man with the bandages then sees Bond leave the room. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. And also, Bond eats a grape. I <laughs> I, I don't, <laughs> don't he know He loves why. grapes. Yeah, yeah, that's a strange little bit, but the only, thing I, any, the only reason I remember that is because it's referenced again in Die Another Day. Oh, yeah, of course it... Yeah, of course it would be, wouldn't it? Bond loves grapes, it's confirmed. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's completely out of nowhere. There's just a bottle of grapes, so he just eats ones. I think it's meant to be that he's being nonchalant, I suppose, but it was a bit weird that he kind he's of a, intentionally went out of his way to have a grape. He's a cheeky chappy, isn't he, Bond? He's a, he's a very cheeky chappy. So then Bond returns to the woman who was giving him a massage from before, uh, who's an attractive blonde of course that's just part of the course mm-hmm. and then then we have another one of these scenes unfortunately oh. where <laughs> she's not that into him yeah uh... i might be i'm skipping ahead a little bit because we've got uh we actually do have another scene but basically he forces her himself be like ah go on love and she's just like actually no um, and actually seems quite unhappy about the situation. So her solution is that I'm going to put you on the rack. The rack. Yes. The and because stretcher. it's a health clinic, they have all these kind of wacky things. So, Joe, what is the rack? I was going to ask you the same thing. I oh, put no. down, is that a real machine? Does I, it... it must be. I, I, can, I can understand that there is a machine that would do something like that, where it... it, it stretches your back right because people get very tense in their back that makes sense does it have to move that way <laughs> does it have to have that motion it was just oh this is one of those scenes again it's like you're laughing at it but should i be laughing is this meant to be dramatic it just looks ridiculous seeing bond on this machine and then where it eventually leads to where he's he's strapped in and she's like you know you think about what you've done uh, trying to trying to do that to me and walks off and uh, so there he is having his spine stretched when oh no the man with the he's wearing a ring like the specter ring isn't he mm, yeah you see his we, hand yeah we see his hand with the ring on it, it turns the crank up or whatever it is to turn the speed up on this machine and it goes into some wild crazy fast mode which causes pain 
and and lots of grimacing from from Bond. I don't. This is what I mean. So it's one of these things where they've like fast forwarded the footage to make it look more dramatic. But when it's the sort of motion where he's on his lying on his front and his arms stretched out and it's sort of rocking back and forth, it just looks dumb. It just looks dumb. <laughs> and when it goes even faster, it's even worse. It's like a little chipmunk mode thing going on. Oh, I don't know. If that's meant to be dramatic and tense, I, I did not feel any of that. They, they want This is one of those where... Looking back on this, because of how long this film is, I'm thinking, what can they cut? They could 100% cut this, and it would make no difference to anything Absolutely. at all. All yeah. you had to do was have Bond discover the guy in the bandages and then seduce the woman or whatever, and that was your lot. That would have done it. But for some reason, they have this extra dramatic scene where Bond is stuck on this rack going backwards and forwards. And I like to think that Sean Connery wasn't acting here, because this <laughs> is like not. the most panicked and like uncool bond has been up to this point and probably ever will be because he's just genuinely like oh god no no the rack <laughs> like he's just like uh, actually like shouting and screaming for help on this thing uh but the thing that saves the scene is that we get some very good shots of sweaty Sean Connery. So, oh, here we go. A lot of zooms in on the faces because it jumps a lot between all these different zoom ins and first person, and quite a few of those is a zoom in on Sean Connery face. And he is very sweaty, so I'm glad the budget is being put to good use. Box ticked. So, what you're saying is you wouldn't cut this at all, or maybe just have the the close ups of Sean, but nothing else. <laughs> so maybe this should be the title sequence. Maybe. <laughs> Just have fun to ball play over this. That would have kept me happy. Right, let's get editing this. I think we could do one of those sort of uh, home home edits and, and make a better version ourselves. I, I love the idea of those lyrics about, oh, his James Bond is so cool. You don't know where it's going to strike. And he's just like, ah, God, God help. Fun to ball. <laughs> oh, I need to see that. Someone edit that, please, please. Yeah. I mean, it has the motif of water on his face. It works. Yeah, yeah. Wow, salt water as well. Wow. Yeah, salty it's got salt everything. water. <laughs> oh. So yeah, I think they are, you are meant to take this seriously, which is what makes it not great, actually. Because the music is so serious. I think mm. if the music was less serious and there was some sort of comedic tone, but no, it's treated like a very, like a fight scene music, but it's just Sean Connery in a towel shaking backwards and forwards. But you have this very dramatic music, so I think it is meant to be taken seriously. I can't hate it because it's so dumb, but it is just dumb. I did hate it before, but now that you've given me that idea for, 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 for <laughs> editing, now I like it. So now it can stay. Yes. It gave us something we didn't know we needed. <laughs> exactly. Um, so eventually, thanks to Sean Connery's uh, screaming and shouting... The woman who put him in there eventually comes back and is like, oh, no, I, I, what happened? And I think Bond kind of says, hey, someone sabotaged me. But she was like, no, that's dumb. It's my fault. And if anyone found out about this, they would they would fire me. So James Bond, being the cool character that he is, is, well, I suppose my silence could have a price. Um and then they both go into yeah. the steam room and she undresses and obviously they they have a good time and make it even more steamy in that room. I think we've had Bond sh schmoozing and, and, and ending up in a similar situation before. 
I think it's that whole thing about, well, you know, my I, my silence has a price sort of thing. That's the thing that makes this really just, ew. I, I really didn't like this bit. And, and I wrote down that we had more of the, uh, yes, back. So more mm. more creepy yeses from Sean. I really, yeah. I think what what makes it worse is the whole, well, I guess they were trying to make her a bit playful, the, the, the woman uh where she's like oh no 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 shaking her finger sort of thing but i don't know just gross yeah i mean we've covered it quite well in the in the previous ones really there's no difference to this one to the previous ones it's just him being a bit forceful she's clearly not into it and then eventually it just flips on its head i think how she is i guess but the thing that bothers me about this and it's actually something that uh we'll get to the bond girl of this uh, film later and actually i think this makes me appreciate the Bond girl a lot more. And it's that Bond just has zero chemistry with some of these women. Like, it's not that they're getting on and he just goes a bit too far. They just don't... I don't think they would be friends. Like, they're just, like, really cold and just not great towards each other. Like, he's sending all these flirty stuff and she's just so not interested. And it's like, they're just... There's nothing here. I get no chemistry between James Bond and this woman. But if there was just a little bit, you know, like what Money Penny is and things like that, and some, you know, Bond women throughout the franchise, if there was just a little bit of chemistry between these two that you felt something, you could at least excuse them kind of, you know, taking to that place so quickly and just having a little bit of fun. Like if it was just framed like, oh, it's just two adults having a little bit of fun because they get on and they both physically attracted to each other, whatever, they're adults, they can do what they want. But there's just nothing here. Sean Connery is not a charming man. He's just so off-putting with his yeses and stuff like that. And I think that's something that would fix this and make this feel so much better if Bond could just be more charismatic in some of these situations. Yeah, blackmailing to sleep with a woman is not the most charismatic charismatic move. Gotta be honest. I think him and uh, Sylvia had had much better chemistry hmm. in in the first film and, and a little bit of you know the beginning of the second one. You're right. There's just nothing there. There's nothing there. And uh, yeah, the, the whole sort of taking advantage of the woman who you know her worried about her job. That's the element of this. I think is a bit different to others, and I just don't like at all. No. And then this whole sequence wraps up with the Englishman that we saw before, who is kind of implied that is the one who uh, sabotaged the rack. Because you hear an English voice saying like, ah, good luck with this or something like that, or have a nice trip or something. I don't know. Uh, Bond goes up to him in his steam pod, just puts a broom in there and traps him and then leaves. And I don't know if you ever see that guy again. I think that might oh, be Oh, you it. do? No, you oh, do. do. But that's the thing. That's why I was, I was just, I was convinced, oh, that's him dead then. But but no, he, he, he got out of that and he comes back. So All right. very strange, very strange. So after that, we get on to uh, a change of location and we see a man and a woman in bed. Doesn't sound so different, but it is, believe me, uh, with different characters. Um, and the guy is needing to leave for, uh, well, we don't know yet, but he soon puts on a, a pilot's uh, uh, coat and you realize that he is a pilot um and this whole i mean i'm having trouble trying to explain this because there's a lot of names going on right now so the the evil guy in the in the clinic was uh, his name was angelo and then we have uh angel who is the, the, the bandit guy right is angelo that's angelo is he? yeah 
Well, I have it in my notes that the masseuse oh. tells Bond that that's Mr. Angelo who's been in a car crash. Oh, you're right. Lippe is the guy that's the other the, the other agent. You're right, Count Lippe. Yeah. So, <laughs> Angelo Lippe. Now you have Angel. No, not Angel. You know what? Start this bit again because <laughs> I cannot get this bit right. Are you <laughs> talking about the, the woman, right? Um, no, no, because there's there's the woman in the bed. There's three men now. There's the Lippe, the real pilot, and then the fake one who had plastic surgery, right? Yes. And that's what I was getting confused at. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Joe, you know yeah, I'll leave this to you because I can't explain it. Right, so I did not put... You know me, I don't put names to people when I write this stuff down. So in my head, I roughly know what's going on, but to me it's just the pilot man and then the the spectre woman, as we find out. So basically the... Yeah, the woman's saying don't go, the pilot goes, he opens the door, and then he gets gassed, I believe, and that knocks him out. But he gets gassed by someone that looks exactly like him, in some very obvious rear projection, I guess, would be the technique they would have used. It it was very primitive, but I actually thought it was quite good. <laughs> yeah, it was surprising. Like, you yeah. were surprised by it, for sure. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so a clone of himself, which I've referred to as clone throughout my notes, gasses him, knocks him out. I think they do actually kill him. But I don't think it was with the gas, unless it's implied they're using the gas from Goldfinger's scheme. But I'm, I think I'm stretching with that one. Um, I think I think it's the same gas he uses on the plane itself. So he does die, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they kill him, and then it turns out the woman is part of Spectre, and there's another man there as well, like another Spectre agent that I think we see later on. Um, see, oh. I thought that was Count Lippe. Was it oh not? My oh my god, this is so confusing. Like, <laughs> like probably. <laughs> I don't remember. I really thought that was, because I was just surprised that he wasn't dead. It makes sense that it would be. But I don't yeah. know. No, it definitely is. It definitely is. Okay, he comes I, back. I believe you. He comes back because he's putting the silencer on the gun later on in the scene. Hmm. Right, okay. Okay, yeah, so Lippy, the guy, <laughs> Lippy, why not, uh, is there. And this this clone guy, the one who looks exactly like the pilot, he's talking about, oh, I've been surgically altered um, to to look like this guy. Hold on, I'm, ch- I'm checking my notes again, because this is, if it wasn't for the names, I would have this all in my head. But in terms of who is who. I've, I've ruined it, but with names, haven't I? <laughs> I should Maybe. never have mentioned any names. Because there's the woman who's Volp is I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. That looks like that's how it's spelled. Oh, um uh, Volpe? Volpe. Volpe? It's pro- yeah, it's probably Volpe, right? Yeah. Because it's saying yeah, okay, yeah. So then there's this clone, there's this other they're all part of Spectre. The guy who is now looking like the pilot is part of Spectre, and in that scene he's all like, I want more money. 
uh, you're not giving me enough money for this case. So you don't actually, part of this is that you're not supposed to know 100% what's going on, which is something that's quite cool about the beginning of the film, to be honest. Like, you know Spectre has this big scheme, and as things kind of play out, you get these little bits in terms of exactly what that is. So you just know that Spectre has a clone of a pilot, uh, a NATO pilot, and this guy demands a little bit more money. They say, well, I think the whoever the other agent is says no the woman says yes that's fine but we'll give you this money as a down payment and lets him leave and then he goes over um to to this airfield um and and gets into this nato place yeah i think what this comes down to that's very evident by our our struggle (laughs) with recollecting the plot (laughs) is i like the idea of this i like the idea of spectre because the guy says two years of my life or something like that all the training to try and do this mission i need more money and i like the idea that they've put so much thought into this plan plastic surgery getting down to the mannerisms of how he says you know chow and, and stuff like that i love all that sort of stuff but it's just so condensed and so rushed and i do think you're right we shouldn't need to know everything there is there is something to be said about having a bit of mystery in the plot and going along with bond or you know the good guys in learning about it but i just think it's very um i don't know i think it's a little bit of a waste of what could be quite an interesting setup to a an evil plan you just suddenly see oh right okay the plastic surgery is done and now we're going to go straight on to the actual operation of it i don't know and then you end up with with me sitting there thinking what on earth is going on even though I did kind of know what to expect with this film because of the plot and it is not that dissimilar to the book. But I just wish they'd have spent just a little bit more time with this section of the film and a little bit less time later on with some of the underwater scenes and make it a little bit more balanced. It just seems very unbalanced, this this rush of plot at the beginning. I mean, I suppose that's fair, but I just kind of take it as in, like, you're not meant to focus on this. And the important part of the film is, once Spectre carries out this plot, that's what the film's really about. And it's just trying to get to that point. Whether that's a good or bad thing, you know, I think that's up to personal taste. For me, I didn't mind it too much. It kind of sets up some of these characters, and I I just enjoy seeing Spectre doing these things and setting up this plan. And I also enjoyed seeing Spectre kind of, spoilers, successfully executing this plan. But I, in my head, I didn't really need to spend a lot of time on it because I feel like that's not what the film was really about. So, so I see your point, but I think for me, I actually thought it was fine because you don't need to know everyone's names because all the important people come back and you kind of get reintroduced to them anyway. And this is more just kind of like, oh, this is just Spectre's plan and how it's going ahead, which is quite different from from Russia with Love, where the plan is going ahead the entire time. This instead has a Spectre plot going on just at the start, which is pretty successful, and Bond has to follow it. So I actually quite like that as a Spectre film or a Spectre plot that kind of does things a little bit differently to one we've seen before. Uh, Yeah, I mean, at least they were fairly successful, Spectre, (laughs) you know, They did quite well with their plan in this one. Hmm. This is when I got a little bit confused, to be honest. (laughs) This is the point when I got confused. Because we see before this scene of the pilot... So the pilot gets in, basically. Gets into a jet. So we know it's a fake version of the pilot. And him and a few others get into this very high-tech jet and take off. And before this scene, we see Bond and the masseuse in a hotel room where... Bond is massaging her with these big bear claws or something. Like, I don't think they're bear claws. But <laughs> I think these, they're mink. 
yeah, like these big fluffy mink things on his hand. So they establish that they're in this hotel room. And then when the plane gets off, it then cuts back to those two. And she's like, oh, these bloody jets always kind of taking off. It's enough to drive you mad, I think uh, she says. And I'm like, I did not associate that at all. So I guess this airfield is meant to be really close to this health clinic. That's a stroke of luck, isn't it? Like the place where he gets his plastic surgery is right next to where he needs to be. But it's also the place that Bond just happens to be. So Bond has happened to go to a random health clinic, which also happens to be a health clinic that can give you that type of surgery to make you look like someone, that also is right next to an airfield, enough that you can just hear it quite loudly in the in the health clinic itself. Like, it's a bit like, okay. But it was a, one of those where, like, I don't mind a bit of a coincidence with these films, like Bond being there, it's a bit weird, but fine. Um, it'd be nice if they explained it like they did with Goldfinger at the start but this one I didn't mind it too much but this one kind of made me confused because it just seemed like such a big coincidence that they would be right next to it and it's like we're expected like oh that's a bonus we can do it right there like I guess it's this is it confused me because it's too much of a coincidence it it doesn't really help with the way that the film is is cut together as well it I don't, I mean, having said that, I don't know exactly what they could have done, <laughs> like have a big pan out and just see the two places right next to each other. Probably not that. But yeah, the fact that it cuts so, so, so strictly from one to the other. And, and you're right. Like, at first I, I I was kind of a bit taken aback by, oh, she's mentioning the, the plane that we just saw. Oh, okay then. Yeah, it, it could have been handled better, definitely. Yeah, you just didn't need it, I don't think. But because of, I can't remember why, but Bond then decides to leave and do a little bit more investigating. Do you remember why he leaves to do that? Oh, that's a good question. It's because he sees the car outside in the window with a, with a what they carry bodies on, trolley. I don't know what they're called, you know. Yeah. Ambulance trolley thing. Okay, yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, yeah, so the British agent... Uh, Lippe comes back and then they wrap up this body in a carpet, I believe. Uh, So Mm -hmm. Bond goes to look around. He then finds the carpet on the rack where he had his awful experience before. Uh, Yeah, he opens it up to find the man in bandages and he unwraps the bandages to see it's the pilot. Um, The real pilot. Yeah, and this is the scene I was saying which had good music as well the good sneaky music oh i see yeah that makes sense i think it was this a, a similar part of the score mm-hmm. anyway yeah um so as he unwraps the pilot he then goes to pick up the phone to report it but while this is happening we see that there are men nearby someone with a gun which i believe you said was lippe which i don't i trust you on that one i just don't I remember it, it was i'm sure it, it, was. it would make sense if it was it, this just shows how little i remember this character <laughs> But it's Lippe. He nearly had his own spin-off. Not Lippe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so as he's calling the, the phone, or on the phone, another hand then comes out of the window, which I don't think is Lippe. I think it's a second person. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't understand who that's meant to be, because <laughs> Lippe was quite clearly being ready to shoot him with the silenced gun. So... Did he know that he had like someone else working for him that was about to attack Bond as well? Or is it... I don't know. I don't know. 
Either way, Bond seems very nonchalant about it, just kind of leaves it there and walks off. Yes. Well, no, he gets the phone, gives it the old slapperoo. So he does fight him a little bit. A little bit, yeah, and then goes and sets off the alarm. Yeah, so to basically cause panic and make sure everyone finds finds the body. Yeah. I do like that Bond kind of acts like he doesn't know what's happening. There is something kind of... I told about Sean Connery not being very charming with women, but it did make me laugh, and it's oddly charming when he's doing his acting, like his fake acting, like, oh, I don't know what happened. This is all very bizarre. Like everyone's asking. <laughs> it's that, that made me laugh. There's quite a lot of that in this film. A lot of, of Bond acting facetious in, in front of people and, and yeah, a, bit, a little bit clueless. It, almost a little bit too much, I would say, sometimes, where it seems he's just sort of, as we come to find out that there is a, a very kind of strict deadline, there's a very time-sensitive plot, and at points he's just sort of still having a bit of fun and, and not really doesn't seem to really care too much. Uh, but that is later on. He has a process, Joe. You've got to respect the process. Trust the process, yeah. So then we cut back to the uh, Vulcan bomber, the NATO flight. It's a training flight which has nukes on, on board. And uh, we have the fake, uh, yeah, the fake pilot, the, the plastic surgery pilot uh, on board, who I think is meant to be there just to sort of oversee it because he's very high command. Uh, but he ends up sitting in the front with the the other pilot, and uh, uses his little gas canister gadget to poison everyone else on board and leave himself safe. And that kind of lets him now take over the plane and divert it to what ends up being Nassau. This whole scene is quite... I mean, it's not a very long scene. It's it's very... Um, to me, it was a little bit too methodical because it, it, you're just... You're just seeing the plot in action and that really just encompasses hugging a gas canister and seeing people die and then him looking at lots of dials on on the plane for quite a while. Um, I mean, it's fine. A man has a sandwich, Joe. I think you're forgetting the sandwich aspect of it all. That changes everything because you really feel for that character then. Yeah, he had a sandwich. That sandwich will never get eaten. But to be fair, like he probably was eating it, and I like to think the the clone guy was like, he's like, ah, oh, when he finishes his sandwich, I'm gonna gas him so good, and he's just there enjoying his sandwich. He's like, just finish it. <laughs> no, don't eat the crusts. Ah, oh. <laughs> he he wants to respect the man to finish his sandwich, but he yeah. takes a long time. I will allow you one last meal. <laughs> yeah, so he he kills them all, takes over the controls. And you, to me, you just get far too much of looking at dials and, and the the plane taking a different course. I think I was starting to like the scene when it had... It was very loud. I don't know if you noticed how loud it was and, and the sort of wind and the whine of the engines. I thought, oh, this is quite... You know, it makes it quite uh, uncomfortable in a way because it was it's just not very nice to listen to after a while. But I think it just outstayed its welcome. But anyway, it's it's not really much to it he he just kidnaps the the plane and and gets it to a i think he gets it to a point where it's not being picked up on radar yeah is it because is it now where we get the little cut back to the command base and and then saying oh we've lost it yeah so two generals british generals i believe uh, are saying like yeah the jet has disappeared from radar but i think they explain that once the jet is too low um altitude wise they can't see it 
So, and they also explain there are nuclear missiles on this plane, so we should probably find it. Although in a very British way, <laughs> I was which say, I appreciate. They didn't really seem very fussed about it. Just like, no, oh, very bloody well, hell, then, yes. governor. <laughs> Ooh. Right, well, let's start a search in inform Washington. Yes, sir. Mm. <laughs> it's just very good. Off. <laughs> yeah. I expected red alarms to start going or something, but no, very low. That key. is red alarms going off. Did you not? <laughs> did you not hear it? Monocle was being dropped and smashed on the ground or something like that. Tea's My being God. spilt. <laughs> uh, so then, am I right in thinking that the it goes back to the plane and then we get a very long sequence of it landing? And the whole operation from the guys in the water. It all goes yeah, on like I, for a I very long time. Yeah, I don't know if we should just quickly sum this up. Because for a good, like you say, for a good while, all we see is the plane and what Spectre plans to do with it. So initially we get uh, Dr. Largo. Doc- Why do I keep saying Dr. Largo? It's not Dr. Largo. It's Mr. Largo. He might be a doctor. Well, maybe, but no one refers him to that. So he can't be a very good one. <laughs> Um, so number two uh, is overseeing this jet and something i actually thought was quite cool where they said turn on the underwater landing lights and all these lights come on and it forms like a landing strip on the ocean i thought that was mm. a neat little touch there yeah they, they've got a plan that specter they they know what they're doing yeah so then the jet lands on the water it allows it to flood the the clone or the guy who's in there has an oxygen mask so he's okay and then number two or mr largo puts on diver gear along with a, over people and then goes to the jet to basically steal the missiles off him but instead of initially stealing the missiles largo goes to goes up to the the clone guy he's stuck and he can't get out so dr uh, Mr. Lago gets the knife out, goes to cut him, but actually cuts the oxygen pipe and steals the, a white box off him, which I believe are the, the arm codes or something like that for the missiles. And I believe the reason is because the clone guy asked for more money. So rather than give him more money, they just cut the pipe. I, I think that's what's meant to have happened there. I like to think that they probably would have killed him anyway. Yeah, it's, yeah, just cover your tracks, right? Just leave yeah. him in there. yeah. It's very like it's not very Blofeld, I think. They if it was Blofeld, he would have just shot a random diver and that would have been his lesson. <laughs> yeah. No, I did like that bit. But I did not like the whole this scene, as you say, we shouldn't really there's not a lot to talk about. It is just very long. And I get the impression that they were kind of proud of all the underwater shots. I think maybe underwater filming was in its infancy in terms of cinema back then it was quite a new thing or a very difficult thing to do anyway uh so they really dwelled on these shots and it's not interesting stuff to look at it's people hammering down nets it's like this isn't why i come to watch a bond film it's it's literally the operation in process down to a t and it's like i don't need to see it down to a t the the plane has crashed you're going to cover it you can knock out 50 percent of the shots and i still know what's happened I was very pleased when this bit moved on. I agree with you in terms of like fundable needs to be edited down. And if there's anywhere you would edit these scenes. But to be honest, I actually really like this scene. (laughs) I liked how methodical it is. I like that they took ages showing everything. I just kind of got lost in it a bit. I was just, as you kind of say, this was probably very impressive back then. But even now I was like, this is really 
cool that so much of this is underwater and they're able to show everything that's going on. Now, at the time, I hadn't finished my ice cream because I was a little—I was having a little ice cream while watching this. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was having a little ice cream. So this was a perfect chance for me to finish it off. So there I was. I put my phone down because I didn't need to do any nodes. All I put was handle like eggs is written on the missiles. That's weird. Um, <laughs> and then I just finished my ice cream and enjoy, enjoyed the ballet of of sorts. I, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Just the image of you chowing on some ice cream. <laughs> yeah. I need you to watch this again without any ice cream. What? No. Oh. <laughs> because I don't That's think not fair. Being... No, it is fair. Oh. Not everyone has ice cream, Tom, when they're watching this film. Not well, everyone is so fortunate. <laughs> I had no ice cream and I had to endure every grueling minute of hammering down a net, a camouflage net, over a sunken Balkan bomber. Yeah, it was like a raspberry ripple kind of thing as oh, well. I was going to say, like Ben and Jerry's or, oh, I don't know, something yeah, would have been yeah, good. Yeah. So great scene is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Great ice cream. Great ice cream. <laughs> but no i like this stuff um and we'll talk about the water scenes a bit more but this one i was actually quite into it because i was like this is quite impressive and i i enjoy seeing this all kind of play out but i also 100 percent agree this film definitely needs to be edited down and this is definitely a very good place to do it yeah yeah totally so after that the the dive we're not done with the divers yet uh they come off they all dry off and then number two draws on a map, which I think is highlighting where the bombs are, basically, where they're hidden. And then we have another slide transition. I wrote these down. I won't talk about them every time, but I did note down when there were the slide transitions. Um, and it cuts to... Hold on, this is all very confusing. So this film has a lot of quick edits. So it's like mm. we go straight from the underwater, straight to number two drying off with a towel during on a map, and then straight away to morning, where number two speaks to Blofeld saying we've been successful. And then that cuts back to Bond in the health clinic. And that's over the course of like a minute. Um, so it can be hard to kind of talk about this film sometimes because of those quick edits. And we haven't had anything like this in any of the other Bond films. So it's actually... A, a very big change in the pacing which i, I think sometimes works but um, as you've kind of said it does make this beginning of the film a little bit more rushed than maybe you would have liked uh, yeah i suppose you can go either one of two ways which you've we've touched on which is either you just sort of sit back and and just let it let it go let it play out don't really question it too much just sit down eat your ice cream <laughs> enjoy yeah. the film if you go if you go the other way though, where you're someone who's like you actually kind of want to pay attention to the details. I'm not saying one's better than the other, by the way. Um, you will be lost with this film unless you really pay attention. So I don't know. It depends on how you want to watch the film, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, if you want to know everything, but I just feel like we've talked about it with the other Bond films. It's easy to miss details, and that changes my mindset with some of these, where I kind of let those details go to the the wayside. Although mm. a rewatch, normally you kind of put it all together. So if I were to rewatch this film, I would one hundred percent put stuff together and be like, "Oh yeah, that's 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 the guy. That's, that's makes sense now. Finally, everyone's favorite." Uh, yeah so bond then drives away in the aston martin which i was thinking about this it was really nice to see the aston martin again from goldfinger but then i don't think we see it again for like a good number of films which seems a little bit weird and i think actually having this car in this film actually somewhat robs it a little bit of its personality a bit where if they had a unique car and something quite different, it would help Fundable stand out 
stand out a lot more. Um, and I think because when you think Aston Martin, you think Goldfinger. No one's not. No one's thinking Thunderball. Yeah. But this is the car he drives, and you see it in a couple of scenes. So I think it's actually might have been smarter t- if they did mix up the car, because you're just never going to think of this film when it comes to the DB5. Joe, you know what they would have done that, I'm sure, if it weren't for the crap ton of money they probably made on Aston Martin toys. Yeah. And so I bet they thought, right, let's just get it in here so we can sell another huge lot of, uh, is it Dinky, Diecast, or whatever the brand of uh, or the, the Bond cars back then. So that's probably why. But I think you're right. Like you're totally right. It it does because it doesn't really do much in this film. You've got the the water jets at the beginning and the bulletproof shield, but here does it in this upcoming chase scene, does it really do anything? No. No. So calling it a chase scene might be a bit generous. So Bond drives away in the Aston Martin. He's being followed, which I assume is by Lippe, now that mm-hmm. you say it. Yeah. But Lippe's master plan is that I'll just shoot my gun at him out the window. Like It made me laugh a little bit because normally there's a little bit of a plan, but he just goes really quick and then just gets a gun and just shoots at Bond. And it's like, okay, all right, if that's if that's if you're sick of trying to kill Bond in any sort of artful way, fair enough to you. It will work later on. I suppose so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Third time's a charm. Yeah. So instead of Bond being killed and the film being over, a golden motorbike with a mysterious person shows up. <laughs> this also I enjoyed this. Shoots a missile out the front <laughs> of the motorbike. And that oh, yeah. blows up the car. Yeah. Oh, well, of course, we get we another lovely vehicle explosion because it, yeah, blows up the car partially, which is enough to then cause it to veer because you probably would do if your car's been <laughs> missiled. Uh, mm. And then it, it, you know, goes over to the side of the road and then you get the big explosion. Kind At least this again. one, there was a missile involved. It's not just a slight crash. Like I can yes. give it that. If it had just blown up because of the veer and then into the ditch, that would have been comedy gold. But at least it had the missile as a bit of a, a, a setup for it, which was quite funny in its own way. Like it, yeah. it was quite unexpected. Yeah. And then, so the person on the bike, we then Bond drives off and he's fine. And then we see the bike gets dumped off by the driver in a river or something like that. The helmet comes off to reveal it's a woman. But I actually only just connected it while I was reading my notes that it's the Spectre agent mm-hmm. protecting yeah. James Bond. Well, I don't know if she was protecting Bond. It was it was based on Blofeld's order to kill Lippe because he had uh he I think he'd basically kinda of like with number was it number five in From Russia of Love where his plan mm. I don't think it's so much that the plan had gone wrong. Oh, it's because uh the clone guy was a liability blofeld thought because he asked for more money so he blamed that on lippe because he was lippe's choice so he said kill lippe and she did when did blofeld tell her to kill lippe on he didn't tell her but he told largo on the phone all right okay okay fair. i missed that i totally missed that point hmm I didn't even know that was the woman who was... <laughs> like, I was just like, oh, that's weird. We'll find out who she is. Not even connecting it to the one before. Don't you love the start of this film? 
I mean, it was good ice cream. Well, I, I can't. <laughs> oh my god! What, what do you want from me? <laughs> you have to tell me the brand later on. <laughs> I'll send. I'll send you some, mate. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then we get to well, this you know the classic Bond setup where Bond is now back going to see M, mm-hmm. and another twist. They love the twist with the hats, where he opens up the door. He goes to throw his hat onto the rack. He's seen that it's been moved, so he just sadly puts the hat on the rack rather than throwing it. I love the little Bond hat rack arc we have going for these early Bond films. Honestly, it's it's a roller coaster of emotions. It's not (laughs) even the end of it. There's hat revelations coming up, Joe. (sighs) Can't wait. Can't wait. Uh, so we got Money Penny waiting, and she's like, "You're late. You're you were supposed to be here before." And she sends him to the conference room, and I was like, "Okay, conference room. We'll get a big board meeting. You know, things like that." I don't know. He then goes into the conference room, which is this insanely massive room <laughs> with like so big, <laughs> yeah, these insanely massive paintings, this massive chandelier, and it's just like an insane set. Uh, I definitely appreciate it, but when when you say conference room, you don't think massive old like uh, Renaissance style paintings on the walls. No, it's almost too big for its own good, especially yeah. when you you later see what the paintings are and it's actually big maps. It's just ludicrous how big these maps are on the wall. <laughs> it's just why does it need to be that big? Yeah. Because I thought we might get the the dinner scene from the last one, you know, where they to- spoke to the colonel. I thought that might be the conference room. But no, this is they a much bigger and over-the-top room. They weren't kidding with the whole bigger, better bond or whatever it says on the poster. Everything really is bigger. Yeah, we've got bigger conference rooms. We got... should have put that on the poster. Yeah. As well as hat revelations. Uh, oh, yeah. So... We then see that there's M and a few other important looking people on one table. On the opposite side of this huge room is this small semicircle with nine chairs and this table of which I believe either Moneypenny or someone says these are the other 00 agents and Mm. every single 00 agent has been called in and Bond is the last one there of which M then somewhat sarcastically says, well, now that we're all here, we can finally start, which was a neat little touch. I love the whole the whole setup with with Bond being with the other agents. You don't really see them. There's definitely I don't think there's any direct shots on any of them. They're always just kind of in the, the sides when No, it's on you Bond. do see them. But do you like see them directly? Cuz I yeah. couldn't Oh, okay. I must have missed that. But um yeah, it's it's such a cool it's such a cool thing to have where you actually see a wider picture. Cuz sometimes it's kind of it's easy to forget that M is actually, you know, he's head of the department of MI6. He has other people to deal with. It's not just Bond. Mm. And so you're seeing them all here. It's kind of how um, with the pre-title sequences, you get the idea that there's all the things that Bond does that you don't see, all these missions that you see the tail end of. And it's kind of like this is a little bit more of that sort of thing where it's there's just so much more outside of the films in terms of the the Bond universe. It's, uh, it's, it's cool. I like that. It's a shame that it kind of took how many years until Goldeneye to actually get another double O agent in the film properly, but there you go. 
Yeah, I, I love this. Uh, I love this scene in general as well. It's just so cool to see the dub- other double O agents. And the fact that they trigger it for like the fourth film in means like there's been a real build up to this kind of moment. But I also really enjoy the parallel between we both find out more about Spectre as an organization and they have their own conference room and big meeting. And then parallel to that, we see... Uh, MI6's big meeting with all the 00 agents. So we both get all the different numbers, number three, number two, or whatever, you know, of that organization. And at, in the very same film, we see the 00 agents all in one room. It's a, a very smart way to build that escalation. And in terms of like feeling like you've gone in this journey and you're learning more about these organizations throughout these films, it's it feels like a real payoff to to everything we've heard about Spectre and MI6 from the previous films. Yeah. Yeah, although you've got to admit, Spectre has the better room. Sorry. Ooh. Yeah, maybe. It's not as big. The high It doesn't have the high ceilings. People love a high ceiling, John. I didn't see any of the double O agents get electrocuted and drop down a pit. So, kind of obvious for me. <laughs> you have failed me for the last time, double O six. No, M, no. <laughs> and then double O three dies. <laughs> he gets money penny to push the button for him. Yeah. Uh, so yeah so the home secretary is is there and gives a a briefing about what's going on he plays a tape which has blofeld's voice saying we're specter we're here to say we're we're gonna steal missiles every (laughs) single day uh something to that effect verbatim yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, and basically he says we have these nuclear missiles from this jet if you don't pay us a hundred million pounds, we will destroy a major city, either in the US or the UK. They won't announce. And it is during this scene that we see the other agents. So basically, there's a couple of shots of Bond, oh. but like kind of a bit of an angle, and yeah. he's sitting to someone with a goatee. Did you see the goatee man? I I saw the goatee man. Yeah, I saw because he's sort of sitting, as you say, because they're in a semicircle. You can see some of them. Yeah. Yeah, and then the one next to him that they kept, you can't see him as well, but he's definitely there. And he looks bored the whole time because he has his hand in his face every single time they show him. Oh, that's 004. He's oh, no double good. F- Ugh. This guy. <laughs> Honestly. No, I didn't notice the hand in the face, actually. That's, that's, quite, that's quite funny. Yeah, but they don't focus on, you know, you're right, they don't focus on it at all. But you do get to see, I don't remember them actually showing any of these, but the fact that they show the shot of Bond sitting next to what is meant to be a double double agent and it's just a guy with a goatee, I'm like, that's kind of cool. I would like to know more, but it's cool that they actually show them in some capacity. Yeah, yeah. I um, I just can't, I, I'm sorry, I just keep thinking about the giant paintings in this scene. It's just, I keep thinking... <laughs> who made the map because yeah the paintings reveal uh, they they slide up and then it's a, a map underneath and it's a map of where the missiles might be based on the the range of the bomber the vulcan bomber and its flight mm. and it's like you know very sensible information to show why can it have been a printout <laughs> i just want to i just picture the the poor guy that's whose job it is to go up on the ladder and make this giant map that's shown for <laughs> 10 seconds it's just like oh i know i shouldn't be focusing on these things but i just i love it it's so yeah silly. it's not electronic is it because like, nowadays it'll just be a screen and you'll be like well that makes sense yeah just get a screen installed yeah could it not just have been in that dossier that they opened later no there has to be a giant map on the wall it has to 
Uh, and then everyone gets told you can open up your folders where it has all the information about the case. And we find out that the code name for this is Fundable, which I, I don't think they explain. Does it explain in the book why it's called Fundable? I don't think so. I think it's just a cool a cool word. And that's exactly how M says it as well. He goes, Thunderball. <laughs> yeah, not very in character, but it makes it work. <laughs> Blofeld did just do a rap, so I think it's fine. Anything goes in this film. Hmm. It's a bigger bond, let me tell you. Bigger M. So following that, we have M talking to Bond directly. And I think the foreign, no, the home secretary, no, is it him? There's another guy there anyway, uh, who is there to talk about what they know so far. And that's where we get the the uh, insight that Bond probably knows where to start looking. I think he was originally going to be assigned to, because all the, all the double agents are going to be sent all over the world to try and find out where these, these nukes are, basically. I think, M, uh, sorry, Bond was originally going to be sent to Canada, which that would have been an interesting film, like a sort of alternate alternate universe thing. But no, he he persuades M to send him to Nassau instead. I'm now struggling to remember why. Oh, it's because the photo had the, the clone guy on it or the real guy. Yeah, That's so the how. pilot has a sister and there's a picture of the sister and him. So Bond says, I should track down the sister instead uh, to, yeah. to find out what she knows. Yeah. And uh, the the other guy, the the government guy in the room as well, is sort of a bit, bit dubious of this. And I like how... In this film, M just like so clearly has Bond's back, like he trusts his his agents. And um, I put down that M just seems quite chirpy in this film. He actually seems not very. In the past, they made him quite grumpy and just get on with this. Yeah, maybe a little a little throwaway line or something. But I don't know. I, I just got the impression that M's in a good mood in this film, especially later on when Bond leaves and has the little a line with um, Money Penny, who calls him a uh, the old man. Hmm. And M was kind of within earshot and and kindly refer to me, don't refer to me as the old man. I don't know. I like that. I liked M being um being a little bit 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 more cheerful. And also just, as I say, yeah, being very uh very protective well, maybe not protective, but but trustful of Bond and his judgment. I like I like that that detail. Yeah, we we see the other side of M a little bit because at the moment all the other plots have actually been quite small as far as things go. I, I guess not tiny, but not quite the same as Spectre's going to nuke a city and kill millions of people. So before we only saw M as the highest authority, but now that another authority has come in, like you say, like Bond, M will shout down Bond, but he does it because he trusts Bond, and we see that here. And it all goes into the escalation part, that we see a different side to M and all these other characters, and it makes it feel like a bigger film, which I which I appreciate. So this is when we get the hat revelation. This is it. So, after Bond goes to leave, after talking to Moneypenny, he goes to take his hat, and the hat is gone from the rack. And it's just like, I guess my hat's gone, and then leaves. But, wh- what? I did not... Well, where's I the hat gone? This. I must where's... have completely missed this. Where's the hat? Yeah, he goes to get it, and it's not on the rack. And then he leaves. So... I'm assuming they're setting up that in You Only Live Twice, he's not going to have the hat, but they don't explain where the hat went. Does he comment about the hat missing? Nope. Huh. He just goes to get it. It's not there. He says, that's off. You know, he just looks a bit puzzled and then leaves. That's weird. It is weird, right? 
I didn't. I really didn't even spot that, to be honest. Oh, you're not I even. Was too, oh. I was too busy writing the old man in my notes. Clearly, I put <laughs> but, down my ice cream jar. I was so livid. <laughs> wow. So that's so. Is that it now with Bond and hats? I don't know. I don't remember the next film, but it's. If it is, then it's like somebody wrote a scene to explain why the hat's gone <laughs> for this film. Hats suddenly became very out of fashion mid-shooting this film. <laughs> yeah, like, we like, need no. to get rid of the hat. Sean Connery is like, it's in my contract for the next one. I'm not wearing a hat. <laughs> oh, I love a bit of hat drama, I do. But then if the hat is in the next film, then why was the hat missing in this one? I don't, yeah... I You're got asking questions. the right questions, yeah. Yeah, I got questions. I need answers. Well, I mean, I we'll find direct... out next week, but mm. I'm going to be very, I'm very excited to find I out. I don't think, I don't think you're going to be satisfied. Oh. Sorry. Well, that, that probably sums up a lot of the, the remaining Sean Connery films, but. <laughs> Get your ice cream ready. That's oh. what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need a few tubs. Uh, <laughs> for sure. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode four of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Joe next time where we follow Bond to the Bahamas where he meets up with an old American friend, has a close encounter with a shark before finally confronting Largo. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you for part two.